Hello and welcome to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast. I'm Dane Cash and we are here to talk about, well, let's see, the Criterium du Dauphiné just ended. We got lots to talk about with the Dauphiné. The Tour de Suisse just started. There are already some things to talk about, and we'll also sort of look ahead to what's coming at the Tour de Suisse, because it's that time of year where we get a little bit of overlapping Tour de France tune-up racing. We're going to talk a little bit about the shenanigans. That may be too nice of a word. uh, Over at the Tour de Pyrenees. We'll get some more information on that and some thoughts on that. So there's all kinds of things to dive into today, and as ever, I'm so excited to be able to dive into them with my co-host, cycling analyst extraordinaire, Cosmo Catalano. How you doing, Cosmo? Hey, doing good. Excited to dive into some stuff. I think we have a deeper pool than last week. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good way of putting it. Last week was we had one stage of one race, and now we've had eight stages of one and another stage of another, and and then some yeah some craziness at the Tour de Pyrenees. <laughs> Also joining us this week, back from a sojourn on the gravel, because she was racing Unbound last time we were recording a podcast. Ruth Winder, uh, winner of the... Hold on. I had something for this, Ruth. Uh, winner of the prologue at the 2019 Lotto Belgium Tour. Former former road pro, current gravel pro, Ruth Winder. How are you, Ruth? Good. Glad to be back. feel like it's been a couple weeks. Yeah, it's been a little while. Yeah. Lotto Belgium Tour, RIP. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. All right. Let's dive into, uh, let's go in on that metaphor. Let's, yeah, I like the pool metaphor. Let's get into this pool. Uh, before we go any further, though, I need to tell you, I want to tell you about being an Escape Collective member. It's something that we have an awesome community here at the Escape Collective. And by signing up, you're supporting podcasts like this one, uh, podcasts like. We'll talk Geek Warning, The Placeholders, our new Unchained Binge podcast, and the website, escapecollective.com, and all the cool stories that you can read over there. News, tech, everything. Being a member supports all that stuff, and as of recently, you can now sign up to be a monthly member for just $11.99 USD, or you can save a bit and become an annual member. We'd love to have you. And and speaking of our members, uh, I'm going to take this opportunity to send a quick shout-out of thanks to some of our lifers, our lifetime members who signed up right when we were getting this off the ground. They gave us a huge commitment, and we are eternally grateful. We said we were going to express that gratitude on our podcasts, and we're doing that now. So I'm going to give a special shout-out to five of you, and you can keep listening to all of our shows. We're going to kind of be thanking our lifetime members over the next few weeks. So this week on the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast... A special thank you to Gabriel Carey. Thanks for being a lifer. Scott Waterhouse, thanks for being a lifer. Trevor Seaman, thank you for being a lifer. Rodney Ducks, thanks for being a lifer. And Mark O'Hare, thanks for being a lifer. Thanks to all of you for being lifetime members. We really appreciate it. We couldn't do this without support from our members, and we are so grateful to have you. All right, on with the show. Dauphiné first, maybe, because that's the race that is that is over now, as of as of the time we're recording. We've been watching it for the last eight days, and it's a race where the heavy favorite to win the race did exactly what he was supposed to do, what he, I think, was expected to do, and what he, I would say, what he needed to do. Uh, he, he really, he kind of crushed the competition. Uh, Jonas Vingago ahead of the Tour de France with really no other 
major tour contenders, five-star favorite. I mean, I guess there's really only one rider who could have come to this race who would have been seen as a fellow five-star favorite. And since Tadej Pogacar wasn't here, it was really up to Jonas Vingago to boss this race. And he did just that. He and his Jumbo Visma team did just that. He finished the Gautam du Dauphiné with a 2 minute and 23 second lead on second place. So, yeah, he performed as expected. I, I don't know what else we can say other than that, because I f- he was supposed to crush everybody, right? Yeah, I mean, you said he crushed the competition, and I would say there was not competition. I think Oof. every time he made a move, I mean, I'm not even saying that to be like, man, you guys are bad at bikes. I'm being to, to say that nobody was going to stick their neck out and be like, maybe today is the, is the day I turn out to be faster than Jonas Vingigo. Even when he, he did a solo attack, um, I shouldn't say solo, he responded to an attack from, from uh, Richard Carapaz on, I think, stage four. Uh, they got away solo, he dropped Carapaz, and there was a group of probably 20 or 30 people, eh, 15 or 20 people, and nobody did anything to try and chase him down. Uh, in their defense, Like it wasn't a great descent for group chasing. Um, there were one or two kind of flatter uphill spots, but otherwise it was narrow roads, it was twisty, it would have been hard to do a ton of work. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, there was no urgency. They were like, this guy's probably going to win the race anyway. Why would I jeopardize my day? Uh, almost backfired on Ben O'Connor because he dropped his chain in the last uh, the last kilometer. But uh, they gave him the same time as the GC group, which was nice. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the start list, there really wasn't anyone at the race that I think was really ever likely to, to defeat Vingago. That said, we had question marks about his form with the tours still almost a month away at the start. And I think what he showed is that he's already pretty darn good. And he's already at a level that is higher than everybody else, except, yeah, maybe Tadej Pogacar. And again, this is also a race, we talked about this before, where because it had this relatively lengthy time trial that was going to su- like really support the ambitions of riders who were good at time trials, that was going to be an important uh, factor in the GC. And he was the second fastest rider in the TT in the whole race behind Mikkel Bjork. So even from the time trial on, he was in the driver's seat uh, as the GC battle is concerned. And then he went on to win two stages, I think. So yeah, he, he did everything he was supposed to do. And yeah, I don't know how much more can be said beyond that. I, I just want to highlight that Biel had the best quote ever after he lost the yellow jersey, um, where he was, he, they were kind of talking with him like, oh, you know, you didn't you didn't have a great defense. And he was like, yeah, but you saw Vingo smash everybody. And I beat him yesterday and he's on form. So I feel really good about that. It was so cool. Yeah, I, I really like that uh, that level of awareness of, of where you stand in things. And yeah, if you can beat Jonas on a good day, that's, a, that's an achievement. Bjork himself, I think, is actually really impressive. He's a rider who has been very close to big wins in the past. He's somebody who we have known about as a as a talented rider for quite some time because he was a very talented prospect. Uh, he was a really, really, really good time trialist at the under-23 level. He won three TT titles, right, at, at, at the World Championships as an under-23. Uh, was a racer with uh, action for two years, and then he's been at UAE now for, I guess this is his fourth season there. Uh, but in that time, he had actually yet to win a World Tour level race. Uh, you know, he's been up there. He's been close. He's been going for the hour record over and over again. Uh, but yeah, he finally was able to to get that big world tour win. And I was happy for him because of that. I, I just like to see when, you know, prospects turn out. Uh, and of course, he's still pretty young, still only 24 years old. Uh, also, always nice to see two Danes 
doing good things. Danes should be at the top <laughs> always. Uh, who else impressed us? Did any, anybody else stand out to you? I think like we've already said, we just kind of saw what we expected to see, which I wish I had something more exciting to say. But I, yeah, I think it, it's just a shame that we don't maybe see something a little bit more exciting, but it is what we expect and we're all waiting for the tour. And then when that's here, hopefully there'll be more fireworks. Yeah, I would imagine that had Tadej Pogacar been around, that would have changed. And of course, the the situation over at Ineos is also, you know, years past, they've been a very prominent feature of this race. They won it a bunch of times during the, the Froome years and on, on either side of Froome's tours as well. But now it's a little bit different. Now it's, you know, Egan Bernal's kind of return to racing tour. Uh, and he, he's a rider that I was very intrigued to see what he would do coming into the race and coming out of the race. I was, uh, he did a decent job. He was decent. And I think that coming out of it, he probably feels okay. He was 12th overall. He was generally okay in the mountain stages. Uh, didn't lose a ton of time. He also didn't crush everybody with the Egon Bernal climbing abilities that we've seen in you know the tour in the Giro when he won those races. Uh, but I would say that at the Dauphiné with higher competition than you might have seen at the Tour of Hungary, he was probably okay with how he did. He was one of the few people who legitimately tried to chase um, Vinigo on, on stage five. So, Yeah, there might have been... I feel like with, with Egon Bernal, with, with a lot of riders who have done big things in the past, like when the Tour de France, there's maybe less of a sense of, oh, I, ha I have to protect my 11th on GC or whatever. They're going to go after that. Uh, but there were some other riders who maybe didn't. And Cosmo, I know we, you know we were talking before we recorded how by the end of this race, it kind of seemed like most of the GC quote-unquote contenders, uh, you know, they were just contending for top 10s, really, because they were contending for the win, were basically just content. You know, I think Adam Yates is a great example of someone who wants to finish as, as well as they can on GC and is very aware of what they need to do to get there. And I think we should be, you know, honor and respect that. Like bike racing is hard. And when, when you go went, you saw Yates kind of in the background react a little bit and, you know, periodically kind of peek over his shoulder, check that gap to O'Connor. And, you know, that's, it's not the exciting super duel everybody wants to see, but at the same time, it's, it's good racing. Like it's, it's good. It's good. UAE is still working for him, still training for the tour. I think you know, it's positive stuff. Uh, I will say that Giulio Ciccone did do uh, some attacking. He did do some aggressive racing, and it got him a stage win. He was a little bit farther back in the GC, so maybe he had less to lose in that department. Uh, but you know, going building his season around a, a run at the Giro, and then having to abandon that plan because of COVID, he, I think, did a really impressive job to be on the form that he was on coming into the Dauphiné, now a few weeks after the, the Giro ended, with the Tour on the horizon. And to do what we know he can do, which is explosively climb very well in a stage race. That's really his specialty. I mean, he's won three stages of the Giro. He's won the, the Mountains Jersey of the Giro. And he's now really adding to his list of races where he's won stages. Uh, he's just a, a rider who is really good at doing what he did here on the final stage uh, into Grenoble, taking that win on what was a brutal, short, but brutal finishing climb. Uh, with the grade, it was like 13% or something. Uh, so hats off to, <laughs> to, uh, yeah. to Chicone for getting up there and 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 uh, not yeah holding off up a, a, a Jonas Vingago led group on that very steep climb where 
you would have expected, I think, for him to maybe lose more time. And he actually ended up holding on to a fair bit of a gap. You have to be a darn good climber to, to hold on like that. And I think that's very promising for Ciccone as a potential GC rider. Who and that, That's been a goal for him. He's he's not really managed to put it together much so far. Uh, but it's it's something that we may get yet to see. He might need a better helmet, though. <laughs> we should explain, I think, what the... Ciccone is known for taking off his sunglasses and throwing them into the crowd as he as he comes into the finish. And today, two or three hairpins from the top, absurdly steep hairpins. Like if you can find video of this, it's just comically just it is I you have to kind of ride around the very like outside edge of each corner because it's too steep to ride up uh, the middle. But he kind of puts his head down for a second and his glasses kind of slide out of the two vents. He's got one of those big trek the trek helmet that looks like the big electrical plug basically. And he's got them in the two, you know, the, the, the polarized plugs, not the, not the ground. And it starts to slide out and he kind of grabs it, but he can't quite grab onto it. And his glasses fall off on the road. And, you know, what are you going to do, right? You're not going to go stop and pick up your glasses, uh, you know, as you're winning a stage of the Dauphiné ahead of Vinigo. Uh, so he kind of rode into the finish and did a normal person celebration instead of the... I would have loved to have, you know, heard his internal monologue. Because <laughs> no. uh, I really want to know, like, was there a second where he thought, all right, maybe I should stop. It's that important to me. <laughs> should have thrown the but helmet. It would have been amazing. Probably would have been fine. Okay, that, that, that could have hurt somebody. But For sure a fine. <laughs> probably, yeah. A, a, a fine in Swiss francs, which, uh, by the way, if you haven't read my Tour de Suisse preview, uh, there's a whole bit in there about why the Swiss franc symbol or acronym is a CHF. So if you've ever wondered why a Swiss franc is a CHF, go over to escapecollective.com and read that. And then you won't wonder anymore after you've read that preview. I can't believe that I didn't see this and immediately read it earlier. Cosmo, are you saying you don't seek out every article I write and read it immediately? Because after a decade of being friends, I don't know, that really hurts, we, man. You know what we should do is we should get a Dane Cash-specific RSS feed Oh, we should into the, yeah. into the backlog of tasks, and then yeah. that way yeah. I can do that. You and, like, I don't know, my dad will be, <laughs> yeah, all the fans will be really happy about that, yeah. Great to see Julian Alphilippe back in, in form. I liked his little, like, quiet down celebration to the crowd because, you know, he never left, right? It's not a comeback win. Yeah, don't call it a comeback. Uh, but it was very much a, a needed yes. a needed win to, to silence the critics, a.k.a. the, the guy who pays his paycheck. Uh, Carlton Kirby is a huge Alphilippe fan, uh, very transparently, and he was quite excited at that result. So I feel like Carlton Kirby's excited about every result, uh, but... <laughs> Yeah, maybe more excited even than normal. Yeah, Alaphilippe, I think he's he's coming into format, I guess, the right time. I mean, he probably would have wanted to have been better earlier in the year, but at the end of the day, so much, you know, rides on the Tour de France, especially if you're Julian Alaphilippe, the, the French rider, uh, and certainly looks to be, yeah, back. Don't call it a comeback, but he did look like he's, you know, back. Yeah, it was exciting to hear. I hadn't watched the stage yet, and I was, someone just told me, oh, Alaphilippe won. And I was like, what? Really? Okay, now I feel excited to watch this bike race today. <laughs> he, he does have that. He's an exciting rider. He's a rider that, like, it's fun to watch him. Uh, he celebrates too early sometimes, and he did it again here. We talked about this in the placeholder show. <laughs> he did celebrate early. He did his thing too early. Uh, but other than that, or maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's fun to watch. Uh, yeah, good, a good Dauphiné in general. For the French, in that Christophe Laporte then won uh, the what the first stage and the third stage, so yeah, French cycling has to be happy. And if if you've watched um, the Tour de France Unchained, 
Netflix docuseries, you'll know that the the hope of the French, it's a heavy burden to bear. Uh, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you should, one, go watch the show, and two, you should listen to the Unchained Binge podcast, which you'll hear on this on this podcast network if you're listening to the main Escape Collective feed. Uh, we've got more episodes coming this week. All right, one other person I wanted to mention, uh, Jack Hegg, who came into the race a bit unexpectedly. He was a late call-up to go ride, I think ostensibly in support of Mikel Landa. Uh, he had raced the Giro, so that's, you know, 21 stages of some grueling racing. Uh, and instead of getting some time off, like I think he had expected to have, Bahrain Victorious called up Jack Haig and, you know, said, hey, actually, we need you at the Dauphiné. We need you at this, you know, mega huge week-long stage race. And he didn't just show up. He didn't just arrive to ride. He did arrive to ride in support of Mikelland, I guess. But that's not all he did. He ended up finishing fifth overall. And that, I think, is a nice way for him to, yeah, kind of bounce back a little bit from a, a quieter Giro than maybe... Uh, Maybe he could have hoped for. Uh, you know, he was uh, well, he's 19th overall at the Giro. But yeah, 5th overall at the Dauphiné is pretty darn good. And coming off the back of the Giro, uh, nice to be able to put that form, you know, to, to good use before he gets to have a little time off. All right, that's the Dauphiné. Let's jump over to the Tour de Suisse, where we've had one stage, which we can talk about. And then we'll also do a little sort of mini preview of what's to come in that race. So we've had the opening stage, the... Not a prologue, because it's too long for a prologue, I guess, 12.7K, but it's basically a prologue, opening TT. And Stefan Kung, on home roads, took the win. And also we got to see the GC battle really kind of get an early hierarchy put into place. Remco Evenepoel, Wout Van Aert, finishing second and third, and I think they're both going to be riders who everybody's going to have their eye on uh, in, in the GC battle. It is. It is nice to see. I, I think we see a little bit of uh, Remco taking some cues from Vinigo here, coming in, not winning the TT, but close enough that it doesn't negatively impact his GC chances. Um, maybe that's the new style now: is kind of give that first time trial away and save your legs for the mountains. Probably not, though. <laughs> yeah, he beat everybody that's not a GC contender, unless you consider Stefan Kung a GC contender, but Stefan Kung is, uh, 83 kilograms, which is, he's, he's a uh, GC contender in my heart. I like, there the, you uh, go. He's, yeah. He's, he's, I kind of want him to win a classic someday. I think he's, he's always kind of in that final group and he's got, he's got a mean like kilometer and a half that I think if he, if he gets enough space, he could win it. So, well, I think that's actually, that kind of brings me to a, a point I had about this TT, which is that it really favored the riders who do have classics talent because it was only 12 K. And I think, that sort of, you know, an engine to go all out for about 15 minutes is really, really useful in the classics. And I, I think that's kind of one reason that we saw Stefan Kung, Remco, Evnepoel, Wout van Aert, and Magnus Sheffield as the top four of this race. It was very much a TT that favored that kind of rider. Uh, did anybody else impress us? Or, I don't, I was going to say depress us. That's not really the opposite of impress. I was pretty excited to see Sheffield up there as an American again. It's always fun to see him to see him do well. Well, I think yes, yeah, Sheffield's a good. That's a good rider to point out. I mean, he's not someone who has thus far in his very young career like, put up that many high level TT 
rides in like at all for us to know. But in the ones that he has done, he's done pretty darn well. So he was third at the Torino TT earlier this year. He was second at the Tour of Poland TT last year. He won a TT in Denmark. Uh, you know, again, his his resume is pretty short because he is so young. But when we have seen him racing, you know, at the elite level in the TTs, he's done quite well. And I think, especially if they're shorter, he's definitely got that skill set. Uh, he's, so he's coming off of a runner-up right of the Tour of Norway. Now he's landed fourth in the TT to start off the Tour de Suisse. So I think I'm actually kind of curious to see what he does for the rest of the week. Because he's a rider who has the versatility to, I think, really thrive on some of these hilly stages. I, I, I don't really know what his ceiling is. Let's talk about some of the, the contenders in general. So Remco Evenepoel is now second overall after that TT. He's got to be the top favorite, right? I mean, I, to me, this seems like there's really no... It's like there's a first-tier favorite, and then everybody else is like a third-tier favorite. Unless unless there's somebody I'm underestimating in this race. It's interesting to see Matthias Skelmos up in the top of the results for what is, you know, kind of more of a power-heavy time trial. Um, he's Obviously, he's finished well at Classics. He was second at... Um, at Flesh Alone, where he dropped a famous, famously dropped an f bomb, um, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if he is a huge contender for the overall here. I feel like this is a race where we're going to get to see a few riders maybe get to, maybe get to go for it. The one I'm really, really interested in, or the two that I'm really interested in, I think Lafanar can win this race, uh, and I want to get your your respective takes on this. I think Remco is the favorite, but I also kind of see Wout, and also Tom Pitcock is the other one who I think, again, could win this race. And I was very surprised to see how much of a long shot, particularly Pitcock was, in the run-up with the, with the bookies. But to me, like, would anybody really be that surprised if he won the GC or if Wav Art won the GC at this race? Probably not that surprised. I mean, if he really puts his mind to something, I don't really know how much there is out there to stop him or what there is out there to stop him. I, I know that Ineos kind of has their eye on him for a potential tour contender someday, but it feels maybe like it's too soon. I don't know. Maybe this is where they take him out and say, you are going to do this stage race like it's the Tour de France and you'll be awesome. Um, but, you know, he was not impressive today. Not that it's a course that plays to his strengths, but he didn't seem like he didn't seem like someone who was going into this keyed up to uh, keyed up to, you know, make his 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 big debut as a, as a GC rider. Yeah, he's not necessarily a big TT guy, but I also, I would have expected better than 49 seconds off the pace from In a 13-minute race. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. That said, uh, back to Van Aert. I think with Van Aert, I, I really want to see how far he can go. I really hope he decides to just try to hold on to his position as long as he can, because I feel like Van Aert has showed us enough of his performances on the, the high climbs, which the Tour de Suisse has lots of, because newsflash, the Swiss Alps are pretty high. Uh, I feel like he has the ability to hold on. And I it just seems to be, I mean, kind of like you were saying about Pitcock and if he puts his mind to it, it really feels like that's the that's the kind of key, is like, does Wadafonart want to do that? Yeah, I think he's a bike racer. Um, and I, I think he'll bike race. <laughs> I hope that's the case. You guys are Netflix producers here trying to create Wild Fan Art GC wanting to win drama instead of Wild Fan Art wanting to win a stage and not watch his leader uh, yeah. drama. We need we need more shots of sad Jonas. I've I've really enjoyed 
that <laughs> so far. I, I think it would be really cool. I think he would... One of my favorite wins of one-week uh, stage races was when Peter Sagan won Tour of California. And I liked that he won it by, like, just grinding the climb as hard as he could possibly grind the climb and ignoring the tactics. And I feel like... Van Art would probably have to do the same thing in a race like this. I think there's only one like proper at the top of the summit finish, but there are lots of big climbs here. And it seems like it would be a big ask for him to to do well. Uh, but if he goes for it, I am I am he has my emotional support. <laughs> uh well speaking of Sagan, I mean the Swiss is this the site of him he won a stage it was like almost 10 years ago. Maybe it was 10 years ago, uh, which had some serious climbs in it. And I remember he was in a group that was like Thibaut Pino and other hardcore, you know, climber dudes and Peter Sagan. Uh, and he was unsurprisingly able to outsprint everybody at the very end to get the stage. When I just remember being really in awe of his ability to climb at the time. Uh, so yeah, this, this would be the race for it uh, to, because there are so many hilly stages at this tour of Suisse and so many really, you know, hard climbs to get over. Um, he does have the advantage of that time trial at the end, um, although it may be also an advantage for Remco. So, right, uh, yeah, it, it's less of a disadvantage than a mountain day. <laughs> well, I think I mean regarding the, the TT at the end, I feel like the fact that this race has two TTs, it's got some serious, you know, high high alpine climbs. I feel like this stage race is this profile is more of a traditional stage race profile than the Tour de France. Like this has more. TT mileage than the Tour de France has, even though it's only eight days long. Uh, so maybe that's why Remco wants to be here. It's definitely one that suits his his skill set. Uh, on that note, so if you're if you're trying to get a sense of when you should pay attention, uh, I mean you should watch the whole race. But the the second and third stage are both quite hilly. Particularly the third stage has an uphill finish. The fourth stage is when things start to get pretty mountainous. Uh, and then, yeah, stage five has a hard climb followed by a descent to the finish. That would be really interesting to see whether that's a breakaway or a GC day for the stage battle. Uh, a little bit of a sprinter chance possibly on stage six and, and maybe seven. And then, yeah, TT to close things out. And it's 25.7K and relatively flat. So it's the kind of TT that uh, I, you, need to, you need to be good at TTs to do well there. So that's why Remco is such a favorite. Well, that and the fact that the start list really just doesn't have that many i feel like the 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 absence of tade pogacar is really showing here in the last two weeks hopefully he'll be back to wowing us soon i guess all right so that's the swiss we've got lots to look forward to seven more days of racing and by the end by the next time we record you'll know who won let's jump over the tour de pyrenees because that has been the big news making race of the weekend uh ruth why? What what has been happening? What happened at the Tour de Pyrenees? A lot of unsafe roads for the races, really, is the most honest, clear way to say it. But to say more, I think if you watched immediately, you could just see that there were cars on the road, um, that it just seemed pretty dangerous for the riders out there. Pretty soon after, there was a lot of chatter. I'm on a, on a group with a lot of the current races still in the CPA and just in the TCA to try and ensure rider safety. And every race has a, like a, a 
assigned rider to kind of be in charge of of the safety but it wasn't even those riders kind of bringing it up first it was actually other racers that were watching the race at home that had seen it and brought it up on this chat first to try and make sure that it was being taken seriously because I think it's pretty understood that while you're a racer in a race you might say oh this is unsafe but it's one thing to kind of say it and feel it and another thing to actually kind of be a team that takes action because a lot of the time what happens is you feel something and the race is like well that's nice we're still going to go on or if you don't have the cooperation of everybody to make change then you know your team is like well you're missing out or something like that so it, it was just really apparent that it was unsafe with the course and with the road closures riders were saying it didn't even feel like the roads were closed at all there were just cars everywhere um and so and and that was obviously a really big problem um and then over the two days you know they had some they neutralized and then it just it wasn't getting any better so in the end they did cancel the race so it was a 2.1 which you know mid mid level um uci race why was the why were conditions so bad i mean why were there cars in the course what what led to all this do we know why there was such a breakdown in sort of the way that things are supposed to work I don't have an answer for that personally. I don't know if you guys have heard anything, Cosmo. I, I have a theory. Um, and I think they it looks like they were doing a rolling enclosure for the field, which I think on 95% of the first day worked and made sense because it was really rural. There's a lot of like farm country they kind of seem to be going through and there wasn't a lot of traffic. There weren't any cities. And when you're just... So the way the rolling enclosure works is there's a bunch of cars kind of at the front of the race... And they let traffic that's oncoming know they need to pull over to the side of the road and let the race by. And in a rural area where there aren't that many cars and there's a lot of road, it's not that big a deal because, you know, a motorcycle stops a bunch of cars. They all pull over to the side of the road. The race goes by and then one motorcycle, you know, makes his way back to the back of the group. I shouldn't say his, his or her way to it to the back of the group. And then rides through the back through the field to the front to catch the next person who comes along. And... Again, like when you're out in the countryside, even if there's a huge truck, in fact, there was a huge truck on kind of a climb about 20K from the finish, 17K from the finish. And it wasn't a big deal because they're they riding, you know, it's a group of probably about 30 riders at this point. They're going uphill pretty slowly. It's easy, even without room, really, to, to stop the truck, let everybody know about it and ride by safely. The problem where, where everything seemed to fall apart was when they came into the city of Lourdes, uh, which was just like. It was a city. There's cars going everywhere, and the roads were definitely not closed. There were cars parked all along the street. Like, there's millions of little cross streets. Like, the finishing stretch had some fencing. Everything else was open. They just didn't, you know, there's no way they possibly could have accounted for every single vehicle that was going to come on the course. And they should have known this ahead of time. You could see they pulled over some vehicles. They got some out of the way. But, like, there's... When we did, when I do the Green Mountain stage race, right, in rural Vermont, when we do the, the, the Burlington Crit, they close the Crit course. They close the city down and block all the streets so cars can't go on the race course. Rolling closure works great in the country, not in the city. Yeah, I mean, that, that definitely makes sense. I, I, I guess it, it does seem like if you're going to organize a race, even at the 2.1 level, I mean, yes, it's not the World Tour or the, you know, the, you know, the Pro Series, but still high enough that you would think that the organizers would know what's going on it doesn't really matter what the level of the race is to be honest if you're putting on a bike race yeah. whether it's the tuesday night thunder out in longmont or the freaking whatever <laughs> race will tour race in europe it should be safe you should never want to be a race promoter that's putting the athletes that are racing at danger so 
I, I just would expect that the organizers of the higher level races would know better. I guess I, I would expect, well, okay, Longmont, you know, there's a lot of cycling around, but <laughs> if a, a smaller race in a, you know, rural town that's not going to draw a UCI crowd, I guess I'm a little bit more f- forgiving of organizers not knowing what the heck they're doing. Like my, my point is more that they should, but we've seen time and time again, it doesn't really seem to matter. There are plenty of races, I guess, where they, they don't know what they're doing for whatever reason. Yeah, no, I just I agree. I think that sometimes race promoters do seem a little over their head, head and I'm not going to lie, like I've been to races before that um, have been stopped because the ambulance isn't there and you're just literally sitting on the side of the road and then they shorten the race because they realize you don't have enough time anymore to get to the finish or you're in Italy and you're in the middle of a roundabout and there's other traffic there and I was kind of in my mind I'm like well that last time I did a race like that which was honestly a race lower much lower than a will tour race like that was probably like five to ten years ago like in that range so in my brain I was just like oh cycling is becoming kind of more televised and of course it's better so when I saw this I was just like oh my gosh now it's televised and people can see it but it's happening all the time we just didn't see it before because not all of our races were televised and I think all these smaller races just have to like understand that it's not okay and people are going to stand up for it well as before we just wanted to race and now it's kind of seen more and not as mu- not as acceptable i guess i mean maybe that's even a silver lining because ruth you were saying that it was maybe the riders who weren't actually at the race who were watching who were pointing this out and the fact that it's televised means you kind of can't get away with doing this stupid shit like having cars on the course which i guess is good because maybe that means things will be more you know readily enforced the rules that are in place already maybe yeah I hope so. I mean, I don't remember exactly what race it was anymore, but I remember at one point, like, it was so dangerous that Ina and Ina Toynberg and Georgia Bronzini had talked to each other and decided who was going to win because, like, we had to self neutralize. And, like, like they, I don't, I'm, I was like 16. I don't really remember. I was so young, but, like, it's, it happens, but we were definitely not on television then. Like, that was not something that was happening. And I think we just tolerated so much more because all we wanted was the chance to race. And now we have so many chances to race and the sport is growing so big that we realize we don't have to tolerate this dangerous um the, yeah the dangerous conditions that are happening and i think a lot of races are super good we don't see this all the time but uh it's sad that it still had to happen but i'm really really proud of the peloton and asking you for help from the uci from the cpa from the tca like there are organizations out there to make sure that this is taken seriously and that enough teams stood up and said something that uh, enough of the smaller teams also felt like it was the right thing to do because some of the smaller teams, right, don't get into the will toll races. So if they just say, oh, it's dangerous, I'm not racing, then that's the chance that they've been training for, you know. So it's it's not as simple as just saying this is unsafe, let's not race. Um, yeah. It certainly seemed like a really telling display of like the, the power that the riders have in a good way, that they were able to kind of take a stand and that eventually, yeah, the race was just called off. Uh, that must, that, which I think just reinforces that you know the riders actually, hey, they matter. We should maybe listen to them if they say things are not safe. Because it's like for me, who has only been able to see women's racing for like two or three years on a regular basis, I was like, whoa, this is this seems wrong. Something's up here. Oh wait, there's cars in the course, and like that was just so like immediately apparent and kind of shocking. That you know, I think if it had just been a piece about oh there was a car, like if you read the if you read the cycling news write up, they're like the final the, the final kilometer was peppered with traffic and pedestrians. And like that's that's it. That's all they say yeah. about it. And yeah. to see it happen like while you're watching is a much bigger deal. Not a not a slight 
but that's how it would have been reported everywhere, you know, until we got, you know, cameras and people posting clips on social media like WTF. So Yeah, I do think, I mean, as much of a horrible thing as it can be, like also social media does sometimes lead to accountability more. So good and bad there. I think social media is great. We as bike racers, me as a bike racer, I would not have a job without social media. And I get really annoyed at the professional athletes that don't like social media, don't like media coverage in general. I'm like, do you want to be paid? Thank you very much. So Ruth, you got yeah, You got to have great. a conversation with, with Luke Rowe, who we were talking about on the placeholders, just decided he doesn't want to talk to media and he's just stuck to it over the years somehow. He's, like, well, good for him. But like, obviously, somebody on his team is and it's being televised. So like, in a sense, that is some sort of media. And that is how you get paid. You are a billboard. If it is not shown, nobody will see you. No one will pay for you. That's a good point. Doesn't Luke Rowe have like a series of social media videos where he like surprises his teammates? Yeah, so... <laughs> we discussed in the placeholders that he's really good on social media. He okay, has a okay, podcast. I get it. Okay, gotcha. He just doesn't talk to the media, so he has full control over over what you know, which is, I guess, actually just really savvy. It just kind of cuts us out of the equation, and you know, good for him. I guess it's smart. We don't, have, you know, he doesn't have to worry about what we have to say. So can't really blame him. Uh, all right, one like quick quick uh, news update. And then we'll kind of close things out here. Uh, reports of Teo Gegenhardt being linked with the Trek team, the Little Trek team for next year, which would be, I think, extremely interesting. He's been one of the Ineos, I don't know, He's he's been a rider that they've kind of really built up into being the contender that he is. And at the same time, I think Trek needs a GC guy. So that would be a very interesting change if that were to happen. It is June, so it's about the time of year we get to have all these fun conversations about who might be heading where for the next two months. I, I actually really love the the silly season. Do you think people like will seed like agents will seed rumors of transfers to just to, to try and hike up the price or to create chaos? Oh, that, like, well, that somebody, absolutely. Does happens. someone call up Dane Cash and say, "Hey, Dane, I hear that this is definitely going to happen." I don't. Well, they, they don't call up a... me, but they they I know who they. I mean, they do call up some people for sure. There are there are certain people who they absolutely call up. Um, yeah, that that does happen for sure. We every every July there's like I think that happens pretty frequently with big name riders. And it does lead to great stories that we get to talk about. It's a lot of fun. And I think other sports, I mean every other sport I can think of really that has a free agency period or trading, some of the busiest kind of like conversation about the sport during each year is around that. So I love that stuff. I'm I'm looking forward to more crazy rumors, and I really hope there. I hope we get a you know Teo Gegenhart to every team rumor because that'll be fun to dissect. I'm just imagining John Vodders getting drunk on expensive wine and like texting people in the media <laughs> with all these ridiculous transfer rumors. I hope that happens. All right, so JV, if you're listening, <laughs> we're waiting for your texts. Uh, all right, I think we've I think we've covered the racing we needed to cover. There's lots to come. We've got the Tour de Suisse with seven stages coming up here, uh, so plenty to watch ahead. We'll see if Watt Van Aert and maybe Tom Pidcock try to go for GC like I kind of hope they will. We'll see if Remco Evenepoel can hold everybody off like I kind of think he will. Maybe somebody else will emerge. And then the Tour de Suisse women follows right on the heels of the Tour de Suisse men, so we got that to look forward to as well. And it's not long now before the Tour de France. Uh, also, the Girodona and the Tour de France Femme avec Swift. They're all coming up, so lots to look forward to. We will be back soon, 
to chat about more racing. In the meantime, you'll get to hear Wheel Talk, you'll get to hear Geek Warning, and you'll get to hear the placeholders. You'll also get to hear some of the Unchained Binge Pod, which you should definitely check out if you haven't checked it out yet. It's got its own channel, and we're also going to upload a few episodes every week here on the main channel. And if you like any of those podcasts, or all of those podcasts, you should know that you can become an Escape Collective member over at escapecollective.com slash join. We'd love to have you. Check it out. All right, that's it for us this week. Ruth, Cosmo, thanks for joining, as ever, and we'll see you again very soon.